Thank you for your patience. Um, we hope to be interesting, entertaining, and uh, bring some of the, um, you know, if not directly issue, uh, address some of the issues which have uh, been placed on the table in the last couple of days. Uh, at least try to address them in a different way. Okay, so um, I'm going to begin um, with um, recalling two authors who very, very much influential uh, to in many, many disciplines. The first is being Raymond Williams, who um, posed at the beginning of um, his book, Keywords, a Vocabulary of Culture and Society, um, a, a, a dilemma. Returning to Cambridge to continue his studies after serving in the army during the Second World War, Williams and an army friend observed that in the new and strange world around them, they uh, quote, they just don't speak the same language. Clarifying, Williams suggests that not speaking the same language means that we have diff uh, that quote, we have different immediate values or different kinds of valuation, or that we are aware, often intangibly, of different formations and distributions of energy and interest, even when the words used may be the same. These distributions of energy and interest are expressed in what Williams calls keywords. To quote him, they are significant binding words in certain activities and their interpretation. Like the word culture in Raymond Williams' time, art in today's world is a fluid and contentious term. Just as the term culture gave shape to the quest of colonial and post-colonial anthropology, um, and after Williams to the new field of cultural studies, Art today has moved beyond its given meanings of activities related to the exercise of the imagination, <clears throat> to a practice of research and communication, a quest for experiences that cannot be represented otherwise or through other means. I just thought I'd put this on the table because this is um, this sort of <clears throat> really um, touches upon why we've had this gathering of people from so many different disciplines trying to speak about art. Um, and um, so this, in, in this sense, art may no longer be accessible to interpretations that situate the work of art only in lineages of style, technique, or specific events. Now that said, let us consider the following passage from another uh, person who's probably very well known in this room, Walter Benjamin, um, and I'll quote from an essay of his uh, called The Storyteller. Um, in that he says, experience which is passed on from mouth to mouth is the source from which all storytellers have drawn. The art of storytelling is reaching its end because the epic side of truth, that is wisdom, is dying out. It is only a concomitant symptom of the secular production, productive forces of history, a concomitant that has quite gradually removed narrative from the realm of living speech and at the same time it's making it possible to see a new beauty in what is vanishing." Unquote. What if we, were to regard, if we were to actively resist this analysis offered by Walter Benjamin, who's widely regarded as a messianic poet of modernity's end times? In the context of Benjamin's interpretation of the loss of the practice of storytelling as a sign of modernity, how does one make sense of context marked by a stubborn refusal to remove narrative from the realm of living speech, and a refusal to see beauty only in that which is vanishing. 
One might say it requires a confrontation with the lore of the past and with the intelligence that came from afar, to use Benjamin's words. A voyage into realms now deemed to be archaic. We saw that in Fessel's um, presentation and uh, conversation with Charles Yaskander, especially. The ostensible subject of Benjamin's essay was the writer Nikolai Leskov, whom Benjamin admired precisely because of his ability to confront the rising hostility of forms of narration whose authority drew on this intelligence that came from afar, which gave it validity even when it was not subject to verification, thus the art of storytelling. In our conversation today, inhabiting our respective roles as artists and anthropologists, that's me and artists of course, Darshan, we are interested in asking a slightly different question, which is to explore while drawing from these transitions that both Williams and Benjamin refer to, what does the, the very act of presenting work in a space devoted to contemporary art mean and what are the limits to doing so? What are the forms, practices, gestures, performances and elemental forces available to the artist? And by what scales of literacy is their availability measured? Now this is a question um, that we both uh, sort of jointly came up with as something to frame or begin this conversation. So I'll turn it to Sudarshan to um, Continue. Yeah, I think it started with answers rather than questions. I think questions true. came later. That's true. Uh, because, uh, you know, this has been culled from my uh, various uh, writings with my, you know, limited facility with writing, you know, trying to kind of figure out a way of, you know, uh, articulating uh, a lot of things I do. Uh, so I'm going to read the first answer. Okay. Uh, the underlying artifice of putting on a show of art is at the root of most of my work. The artist is performing a role. Work is produced and displayed, either literally or at a poetic distance, as an explore, exploration into the efficacy and futility of objects as signifiers for an imagined life or even, a, even an imagined death. In assuming this role, a way is open to invoke, or perhaps simply borrow, the seriousness and sincerity of a formal gesture. Through the performance of poetry or a story, and the aesthetic appropriation of a familiar architecture, and the material symbolism of both, the artist asks whether a thing as vast as, and subjective as tradition can be legitimately introduced into a practice or indeed whether knowingly illegitimate introduction of the subject can be harnessed by the perceived role of, an, of the artist, the eccentric mediator between fact and fiction. Objects are built from scratch with no one in mind, to, uh, no in, no one in mind and no distinct life to commemorate, something echoing a film or stage set, a site of theatrical celebration of the quotidian where the surfaces of things speak their symbolic truth, but the structure is artificial. What is being brought into the question is the very act of presenting a work in a space devoted to contemporary art. What is carried into the space by the artist and what is ultimately taken away? The awareness of futility in the making of a show must be present in the making of the work. 
What is essential, however, is the decision to assume the role of an artist for the necessary period of time in order for a show to be produced and a willingness to move between those two positions of the production of meaning and the inherent vacuum within that act as if they were mutually inclusive. So let me repeat something that runs counter to an event-based art history, a lot of which has been, uh, we've been invoking in the last two days. That is, when you say that objects are being built from scratch with no one in mind and no distinct life to commemorate, I want to emphasize that because in a world in which art objects and artistic practices have become so highly valued, something that Shruti also touched on, um, both financially and as forms of activism, as inherently and intentionally meaningful, it seems worth reiterating this stance of futility and the problem of beginning from this lack of address. In this sense, artistic practice everywhere is underlined, um, obviously, by experimentation and invention, even as the work may signal the influence of practices, gestures, and conventions that come from other times and from elsewhere. So what position or attitude may legitimately be assumed in relation to those signals? That's something I'd love to hear more about. If I were to take a position, uh, it would be to emphasize that I come from a culture which has preferred oral, performative, and gestural modes over the written. This is how things have been passed down over centuries, even though writing was also available to us uh, well beyond our recent colonial past. The question is, orality was preferred. Uh, let me speak briefly about my own past. My father was a performing artist. He practiced a traditional form of musical dance drama that is believed to have originated more than a thousand years ago and is kept alive even today. I grew up in a family with a lot of music and storytelling, apart from Hindi cinema and cricket, of course. Uh, I was also introduced to other forms of poetry and music very early in life, which could be termed that as traditional or even sometimes ancient. Uh, in my own work, I have tried to find aesthetic strategies that are embedded in several, uh, several of these art forms that may throw some light on contemporary life. I have been grappling with the question of whether it is possible to find points of mediation between where I come from and how I was taught to make art. <coughs> or at another level, between how I am taught to make art and the world as it were outside of it. I've been deeply interested in the organic evolutionary trajectory of institutions that are mainly dependent on the oral transmission of knowledge and thus dependent on human relationships. Yet, gesture, speech, dance, song, and the bare elemental forces of body are the essential substrate of all the material memories, all seem to be measured by the scale of literacy. My concern is that culture is measured by how many institutions there are and how well they are set up. My belief is that that is not the only measure of a thriving cultural life and cannot be applied ev everywhere. And the institution, as we generally given to understand, also implies a measure of certain literacy, which may not be true for every location. Here, from my position as a maker of objects, I think it would be best to begin with the essential hum human need to make or gather objects. I'm interested in an idea that comes from the Upanishads, uh, which asserts that action is inevitable. Uh, 
in one's lifetime one cannot but act and that you are in an active mode from the time you are born to the end of your bodily existence this compulsion to act sometimes perhaps results in production of objects objects that could be read as manifestation of thought both material and immaterial um so pick up on that then there seem to be two big ideas in what you've said as sudarshan mentioned in fact this conversation is uh, orchestrated around the text which he already wrote so in a sense what are the questions that can be asked of the answers he's already giving so uh, for me it seems that there are these two ideas that struck me the first is um, it concerns the provenance and influence and what the artist brings into the space of making and the second concerns what the what is taken away um, um and also the compulsion to act which is embedded in that making um and to put it another way you have been very, for a very long time interested since i think um well maybe uh, you had your first solo show in 1993 and uh, maybe from that time onwards you've been very much interested in the questions of scale and of um, uh, autonomy and independence of objects whether in your early kinetic installations or in your most uh, in your more recent reflections on the dissolution of the body there've been a number of shows um, that you've done which have been around this theme of death and uh, the dissolution which is embodied in objects um as well as in the problem of meaning and the ultimate futility in making i was very struck for the first time listening to you speak about this notion of futility um perhaps you can reflect on how these are all connected in your first cinematic work uh, that is shunya garsh hai which is made um for your uh, retrospective show at the national gallery modern art um, in delhi in 2016 Um, in many conversations, uh, you have explicitly said that your first encounter with uh, the Nirgun philosophy, which informs this film, and we'll talk a bit more about this, in the works of Gorakhnath, Kabir, and many Sufi poets, uh, who meet, who meditate on form and formlessness, and their use of contradiction, actually comes from listening to the great Indian classical vocalist Kumar Gandharva's rendition of this poetry. so you're coming to this poetry not through reading texts but you're encountering it in music and in a very contemporary form actually um in this that is the kind of observation which touches on all of these ideas the idea of transmission and the freedom to trace your trajectories of influence um and the freedom from events of meaning themselves as a, as a key way to establish other lineages for making in the space of contemporary art So uh, could we hear a bit more about that from you? Yeah, let me address uh, your second point about freedom in relation to making the space uh, of contemporary art by saying that I have understood that only by engaging fully in the present tense of an act that is known to be futile here the making of art with full attention and engagement can a position can be established whereby afterwards when the work is completed perhaps a distance can be drawn between the two sensibilities present in the artist that of an engaged craftsman believing fully in the act and that of a of the conscious discerning observer seeing the act from afar seeing its position in a vacuum 
the two positions are not mutually exclusive only with full engagement and and with a fuller understanding of of detachment become available if everything is meaningless then the only option left to us is to ascribe meaning so maybe a good way of continuing that conversation is to actually speak and about your film uh, shunigar and show uh, some of the associated work with it um, to allow us to approach this um, this new idea i think that you're playing with um, about this futility the context in in um, you know approaching art in this manner in a context of you know which is in the context of criticism which is suffused with interpretation of artistic intent iconicity indexicality innovation all of these words have been used in different you know in art history and um in you know, the many disciplines that were represented in this conversation um but you seem to be deliberately moving away from a fetishization of authorship uh, by suggesting that the work of um, of the artist is rooted at some level in futility and this futility around making and that you know that um uh, that giving meaning is the only way that one can approach that duality or the contradiction um and that gets opened up right by the futility it, of the i do not see it as contradiction to begin with yeah. okay. so <laughs> and i think the answer is in your film so you yeah i think it's uh, very well uh, kind of you know this one of uh, my favorite kabir lines which uh, one liner uh, unusual because he normally writes in dohas this is like a poetry that he wrote in one liner the first line says dohas that dohas a couplets yeah uh he says lagan bina jagena nirmohi you know loosely translated it means uh, if you do not engage with something with uh devotion uh, uh complete devotion. devotion you will not find the detached within yourself that you know within the same line there is detachment and devotion both possible you know uh, as if they are not two different things uh so going back to uh so i mean i yeah of course i mean as you mentioned i uh, i got introduced to kabir uh, very early in my life uh, through kumar gandharva's rendering of nirgun bhajan uh, and from kabir i kind of get introduced to goraknath who kabir thinks that uh, uh, kabir considers to be a guru uh, mm-hmm. who were like 3 centuries apart you know uh, this is 12th century uh so there was again you know there is another rendering uh, another rendering of kumar gandharva's of a poetry by goraknath uh which which like remained with me for a long time uh, uh to briefly kind of talk about the idea of doha i mean goraknath is supposed to have invented the idea of doha you know which is not couplets but uh, two liners uh, loosely kind of uh, to be able to translate uh <laughs> that uh, in doha's more often than not what happens is you know the first line comes up with an image and the second line uh, comes up with a completely diverse image uh and uh, you know i was talking to a professor in english who also happened to be an expert on in uh, in uh, uh, nirgun poetry so she said that there is a technique of uh, deconstruction while you to be able to you know make uh, uh, poetry understood english poetry understood and uh, 
but when you, if you kind of remove, like, you know, separate or deconstruct, you know, a Doha, it completely loses its meaning. You know, it's like stretching a rubber band to an extent that of its break and not let it break. Uh, it's holding it together. You know, that tension and that kind of cosmic space, you know, becomes available only by, you know, them being together in some ways. But yet, you know, for example, this work, uh, this poetry that I'm talking about, which this work is based upon, uh, says that the first line goes, Shunya uh, Shahar Shahar The second line is, Kon Sota Sukon Jage Hai. Very loosely translated. I keep saying loosely translated because it's impossible to translate in English. And it's, uh, you know, I worked very hard to, you know, find a translation uh, closest to its spirit, but it was impossible to find one. So this is my loose translation of it. it the first line goes, empties this fort, empties this city, empties this home. So the second line says, who's asleep and who's awake? So if everything is empty, then where's the question of anyone being awake or asleep? So what it does for me is like, it kind of opens this enormous cosmic space of understanding of that you can take away uh, from it the way you have understood or we, the way you have experienced life. Uh, so this kind of, you know, uh, possibility uh, for interpretation is something that interested me. And I see the resonance of it in you know, various art forms. I mean, even in my father's art form and, you know, like which I, start, I revisited much later after his death. Uh, trying to, you know, collect records and all that. I see it, you know, kept repeating in various ways. Uh, so this became like a late motive. So, you know, like it's very architectural. I mean, it creates all, all this. I mean, there are a lot of these architectural images. Uh, I'm not going to recite the whole poetry now. Uh, but so the first impulse was to kind of create architecture with it. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of... Uh, wood that is collected from various, uh, you know, I go to Chor Bazaar, which is the second hand, hand wood market, and uh, I buy a lot of wood that is, uh, that comes from dismantled structures like homes and doors, and uh, so it's a way of, you know, including all those unknown stories into the work. Uh, also, and um, so we, I worked on this architecture with the help of, you know, six people that I worked with uh, while I was writing a script for a film that could be possible within these spaces. Uh, and uh, yeah, so while I was writing the script, as it kind of started evolving, you know, like we kept changing the architecture and, you know, the architecture is entirely dictated by the script as it was developing. And it was very much an organic kind of uh, process and uh, and it's entirely idiosyncratic in some ways, but it still looks something that is old, but it's newly built, uh, but with the old material. So it's playing with these various uh, opposites in that sense again. Uh, so you'll see this was, you know, uh, and then we took this, uh, and it's eminently dismantlable, completely dismantlable, and uh, we dismantled. which means empty is this house, yeah, yeah. Um, so we took it to a abandoned quarry. So there's, there was this cavity made in the mountain by 
the stone having been taken away to build elsewhere. And this was a symbolic gesture to kind of build it there again. And we started building as, you know, the five to six people that worked with me were a part of building that in the frame. We started shooting the film. Uh, it had to be very tightly scripted because, you know, we had like 75 people, you know, in the crew that, uh, uh, so, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, they would, like our, our short measure was like, oh, Panchwa Khamba, you know, like the fifth pillar <laughs> or the sixth pillar. Uh, so, and, uh, so while this was being built, there's a musician who plays the score for the film, um, a guitar score, and he's also in the frame. And then there are actors who play out, you know, various roles, you know, it's appropriating the conventions of dramatics, uh, Within classical, classical Indian drama, not necessarily dramaturgy. classical. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all kinds of it comes from Hindi. I mean, I, the, my notion of what what drama could, I mean, what what would make mm -hmm. for a drama. 